How do the markets fare in quarter three? What trends are unfolding this year? And what's on the horizon for the rest of the year? Nate Conant and Clint Walkner unearth the answers to those questions and more in this bonus episode of Gimme Some Truth, our quarter three market recap. Armed with data from JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, Clint and Nate explore the drivers of inflation, U.S. market outperformance, bonds, and more. So sit back and get ready for some truth. Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. Little uh, Q3 recap today between Nate and myself. Uh, it's going to get real fun because we're going to talk about valuations, price earnings ratios, forward price earnings ratios, inflation expectations, interest rates, uh, domestic versus international. Uh, stock returns and expected returns. And uh, anything else that I missed there, Nate? I just lost about half the, not even 80% of the audience just turned us off. Fine. Just moved on to a different podcast. I love it. We'll come geek out with us. And right. like, I don't care about that 80%. I really care about that 20% that loves the Q3 recap. I mean, it's it's timely because obviously Q3 ended, but it's more timely because the markets uh, have experienced a little bit of uh, uh, uneasiness. A little, uh, little trepidation in the markets in the, in the third quarter. It's not just your garden variety fastball down the middle quarter. That's true. It kind of, I mean, we do some of these when it's just like, okay, yep, yep. Okay. Little up, little down there, you know? Yeah. This is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, you know, meat to this one. Yeah. It kind of, kind of fell apart at the end there. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of selling that snowballed towards the end of the quarter. And so it kind of fell with a thud there at the end of Q3. And so, you know, I, a lot of people are wondering, well, what's next? And I think that the best spot to look at when you go through these bad quarters is where are we at now for valuations? And, you know, we look at a lot of different metrics, but price to earnings is probably the most common because it's the one that many people follow. And so I think that it's worth looking into a little bit about where we're at now, historically speaking, with price to earnings ratios, because obviously, you know, one thing has to give in each part of the equation to drive stock prices. Uh, and so generally, you know, when earnings expectations start to fall, obviously prices will start to fall. When earnings start to perk up, then, you know, prices usually rise or at least uh, the expectations of those earnings, uh, you know, because it's obviously a, a forecasting thing. The market moves in anticipation of what it thinks it's going to do. So, you know, if we think earnings are going to be good for a particular company, um, you know, say Apple, we think that earnings are going to be good for Apple when well, the stock price will move to reflect that um, and that forecasting. And when that doesn't come to fruition, then we'll see the, the price fall. So well, let's talk about that briefly, because I think yeah. that, that people don't don't I don't want to assume that people don't understand that. I want to make sure that people do understand that. Right. So when we talk about valuations, I mean, stocks in general, for the most part, are priced based on what people think the future earnings of that company will be, right? I mean, that's basically what it is. I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like if a stock goes up in value, excuse me, up in, in stock price from $30 a share to $40 a share, that could happen for a myriad of reasons. But one of the main reasons, and, and one of the main reasons why kind of pure fundamentalists would tell us that that happened is why? Because people think that the earnings are going to be higher in the future than they were up to that point. Right. I mean, that's essentially what you're, what, when you buy it and when you have a stock price go up in value, your stock price went up because the general consensus of stock traders thought that the earnings of that company will be higher 
in the next quarter, two quarters, five quarters, whatever it is, than they were at the time that the stock was at $30 a share. That's exactly right. Let's take Apple, for example. If Apple, you know, never produced another phone right. or computer, if they just ceased operations, the stock price would essentially be zero, right? Right. And I don't care at this point what their previous earnings or anything exactly. were. It's just a, a forecasting guide, but really I'm buying future earnings. Right. And to take that one step further, let's say that, that you could assume that, that Apple's earnings would be exactly the same for every year moving forward as they are today. Theoretically, the stock price would never change. I mean, that, that it would because there are a few other factors, but if you purely look at it from how fundamentalists look at stock trading, if, if they know that, that a stock's earnings are going to be exactly the same, which nobody would know. It's a hypothetical, obviously. But if somebody knew that, then the stock price would be stagnant for as long as that constant um, plays out. That's correct. The earnings and the price would essentially be stabilized. Right. So when they talk about the market being efficient, right, that's what they're referring to, right, is the idea that if these things were known, the stock price, if, if, if you knew the stock, the, the future earnings of every single company in the index, you could predict the stock price of every single stock in the index almost to the penny. Uh, that's the definition of, quote, an efficient market or, a, or you know, a, 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 you know, what we assume as, as a well-balanced market. That's right. So if we go back to today where price to earnings ratios are at, you know, previously, if we saw, say, for example, last year, um, last year valuations were very stretched. Uh, the price to earnings ratio was, was quite high uh, relative to historical averages. And Nate, I think you have the, the chart on this uh, here as far as where price to earnings ratios are right now. And we see now that things are a lot more fairly valued than they were uh, previously, and and arguably maybe even a little under, undervalued. You have some stats there for us, Nate. Right. So we're and, and we'll we'll uh, Danny. Am I am I misleading our listeners and watchers? There, people are going to see these charts. Yes, on the uh, <clears throat> excuse me on the, the visual aspect of of this recording. Um, this comes from J.P. Morgan uh, Asset Management. They do a, a really good job of of putting together um, what we believe to be some of the best outputs. Uh, people, you know, things that people can get their arms around. It's not too in the weeds. It's 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 usable for. Uh, somebody that, that doesn't have a, you know, a PhD in finance. Um, the 25 year average within the S and P 500, uh, on what, what Clint's been referring to the, the forward looking PE ratio. So again, the forward looking price versus earnings ratio, uh, the average over the last 25 years has been 16.83. Okay. So if we just use that as kind of a, a, of a, of a mark, right. And then, you know, use it as comparison, right. Uh, right now, October 3rd of 2022, uh, JP Morgan has it at f uh, the S&P at 15.51. So again, 16.83 is a 25-year average, and we're now sitting at 15.51. So a little undervaluation, you know, when we discuss what historical means have been. So, And we'd say... Historical uh, uh, average. Yeah, and a little... Um, Maybe even kind of getting into the area of, of pushing a lot, right? I mean, you're you're sixteen eight versus fifteen five. You're starting to move away from that average a decent amount. Yeah, and then we had a little rally over the last week or so, and then it all dissipated at the end of the week too. Fell apart. So one of the things to watch when we're watching these markets is 
oftentimes when you have a lot of negative sentiment and the momentum is negative, you'll see a lot of the same things. And we've said this before in prior podcasts, but you'll see the end of the day, everything falls apart. You'll see the, the market be able to, un, you know, is unable to sustain a rally and it just, you have this negative momentum going on. And that's what we're seeing currently right now in the markets is just a ton of negative momentum. And so there's not a lot of catalyst for the stocks to, to rise. And so, you know, the market may stay undervalued for a protracted period of time. Um, and right now it appears the market's on a slight sale and, and perhaps turning into a big sale as we go along here. Um, so the earnings will have to continue to support that though. And I think that's a reason why you're seeing this, kind of undervaluation right now is that we are literally seeing the expectations uh, melt away and, and get the sentiment getting worse and worse right now as far as where we are going to see earnings uh, just due to the fact that the Fed is moving fairly aggressively and raising interest rates right now and trying to tamp down inflation. Yeah, I think in some cases the traders within, uh, um, you know, the industry just in general sometimes get a little bullheaded and don't, it can kind of miss the force of the tree sometimes. And I think the Fed's done as good of a job as possible at literally beating the traders over the head with the idea that this is not slowing down. We're not, we're not kind of doing this to just kind of, quote, see what happens. We're getting this under control, this being inflation, uh, by way of, of rate increases. And, uh, you know, it just, it's weird because uh, every time the Fed says that and, and, and says that as blatantly as the Fed says anything, uh, three weeks later, two weeks later, there's a story that'll come out that that the, the traders are are on to some other, um, you know, line of thinking because of some justification as to why the Fed's going to slow down. And then the Fed comes out again and beats them over the head again and says, "No, we're not messing around. We're doing this." And again, I mean, it's just like they keep falling for the same, you know, trick over and over. But it's not a trick. They they just keep believing, um, you know just unsubstantiated kind of rumor gossipy stuff and don't listen to the fed for what the fed is saying. I don't, I don't know in our careers. I don't know that I've, I've, I can remember a time that the fed has ever spoken as plainly as they, as they've spoken in the last six months, three months, probably is a better way to say it in, in regard to what they're going to do for inflation. And the, and the, and the street just still doesn't seem to believe them. They always wait, wait for the pause moment, but right. Inflation hasn't, come down in a marked manner yet we're still way above i mean we're seeing jeffrey gunlock it's really smart people coming on and saying that we're gonna have rate cuts next year already like they're gonna reverse course that quickly i'm very skeptical of that perhaps we'll have to go back and correct everything we've said but i just find that to be really quick we'd have to go through quite a deep recession if we were to see the Fed reverse course that quickly, that means that they way overshot it. We went into a really quick, deep, dire recession. I think with the way that the Fed has telegraphed everything, though, in my opinion, I just think that it's just not going to happen that fast. And I, I agree with you, Nate, 100%. The Fed has been very telegraphed in all of their moves, and I don't anticipate them to slow it down at all. I think that they're going to continue to raise interest rates until they reach a pause moment. They've even kind of telegraphed that next year they're, likely to pause um, sometime early next year. And, and they're going to just see how this all works in. I mean, if we look back at inflation drivers and expectations, and I look at the chart here and inflation expectations, uh, the professional forecasters uh, 
are saying in September 2022 that, that our inflation expectations over the next five years are going to be 2.9%. Uh, consumer expectations are 2.7%. You know, I, I think it's probably over the next five years likely to be higher than that. Um, we just came down, you know, in about, uh, let's see, June of 2022, we had inflation numbers at about 9.1%. That appears to be the peak. Uh, but then, you know, it's gone down a little bit since then, but we're still at like 8.3% in August. So, I mean, it's not like we've gone from 9.1 down to, you know, 5 or 6%. And that's year-over-year year change, so it takes some time to bake those in. But we are seeing definitely higher inflation than we've seen in, in the last you know, 35, 40 years. And the Fed is going to have to make continued interest rate increases, a, uh, a fulcrum to help bring that inflation down. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, that you and I are big believers in, in the idea of regression to the mean. And the further something pushes away from, you know, it's mean, the, the, the more likely it is to regress back to it. And I think that, that as a, as a, um, kind of the next step in that logic is is the further something moves away, uh, you know, moving back incrementally to the mean, the it can move back big steps, but as it gets closer to the mean, it, you know, it takes more pressure to get it down to the mean. So my point here is if it peaked at nine, right, I could easily see it falling to seven or to six. But the idea that it's going to go from nine to three Right, because I think what happens is is the 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 amount of effort that it takes to get it to go from nine to seven is not the same amount of effort that it takes to get to go from five to three. It takes more effort from five to three than it does from nine to seven because nine's so far out there that for it to drop from nine to seven, you go okay, that that didn't take much. The Fed kind of pushes it a little bit and indicates a few things, but as they say, inflation gets stubborn, and it gets stubborn the closer it gets to kind of back toward normal points. So this idea that we're just going to go from nine back down to sub three, it's going to get stubborn at, at five or six, even four. And I think the Fed's going to have a hard time pushing through that. And I think the Fed knows that. And so I think that's why they're being so clear with this is because for them to get it to drop 200 basis points off to where, F, where it is right now would be a big move. But that's still incredibly high inflation. So you can't, and they know they can't maintain that. So I, this just seems like this is going to take a lot more effort. And, and you and I, res, you know, respect a guy like, you know, Jeffrey a lot, but <sighs> rate cuts. I mean, holy cow, like it's really going to go from nine down to what sub two and a half to the extent that they can start cutting rates again. They were even mentioning it, it just inflation. Seems, it, it just seems, I don't understand that. I don't understand how that logic works. And we'd have to have a super deep recession and it would have to start very quickly. I don't think we're in, you know, we might be in like a technical recession right now. I don't think we're in some sort of deep recession right now at all. Uh, but you know, I just see it as being like you talked about the sticky inflation. Uh, we, and I've read, written a blog post on this, but there are components that just stay around longer. And those are wage gains. Those are, um, rents that go up, those are sticky right. items, right? right? So, you know, when sticky meaning that they're not going to be, they're, they're not just going to fall. That's exactly right. So once they become a component of that inflation, it's hard for, for it not to continue to, to be baked in. So for example, you know, we can't just go and, and go to Dan and be like, Hey Dan, we're just going to cut your salary now by 10%. We kind of overshot you a little bit. 
Uh, which, which we probably have, but you know, maybe it's. I mean, we probably could do that. Maybe we could. Maybe we. Hey, we're contributing to bringing down inflation by cutting down salary. Everybody's got to pull in the right direction, Dan. Uh, there Sorry. you go. There you go. So, um, yeah, I think that there's just a situation. By the way, that'd be a great band name too. Sticky inflation. Sticky. Yeah, that'd be a great, be a great <laughs> what band kind of genre name. do you think that is? Um, probably like industrial metal, something like that. I like that. that. I was thinking right. ska. But, yeah, you know. sure. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. right, I like that horn section. Sure. Right, yeah. yeah, sticky inflation. Some guy's got like a pork pie hat on and just yeah, just going yeah, to town. Sure. <laughs> so when we talk about um, other spots that we see, um, I do think that there are always opportunities in every sort of market, and I think one of the hardest places to go right now is saying, well, okay, <laughs> in the stock market, where do we have any sort of value, and how, you know, how can we extract extra rate of return from there or where might be there where are there places where historically you're seeing a little bit more undervaluation and if we look at it um usually you know we look at companies as value-oriented companies which are tend to be more dividend paying companies tend to be more energy companies or financials or utilities and you have your growth-oriented companies i think a lot of people know what that is but mostly technology companies uh companies that are going growing their revenue very quickly um Oftentimes, a lot of them don't even have much of a short-term profit motive. They have a long-term profit motive, but the growth of their company is more of a priority. Those tend to have and higher I think price growth ratios. companies can turn into value companies. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, Microsoft at this point, you could almost argue is you know maybe not purely a value company, but I mean it's kind of almost stuck in the middle now. You know, and that's kind of the evolution of big tech companies. Yeah, it's very true. And it's a great point. Um, we do have some kind of value-oriented technology companies in that they pay dividends. They don't grow as fast, uh, but they're just tried and true. You right. know, maybe Apple's transitioning into that. So right. if we look at that and just say, you know, historically speaking, where are we at growth versus value? Our long-term price earnings ratio average, it's about 14.09 on value-oriented companies about 20.72 on growth-oriented companies. That's our forward PE. Uh, the current valuation on value-oriented companies, 12.44, and for growth, 20.81. So the long-term average almost exactly matches on the long-term growth side. Um, but on the uh, large-cap growth, I should say. And, and then on large-cap value, um, there's a bit of a disconnect there as well. It appears that if you're looking at you know, is growth cheap? Well, the answer is no. Seems to be pretty fairly valued. Um, is value cheap? And I would argue, yes, value-oriented companies are a little bit inexpensive relative to our historical norms. So perhaps a tilt to value in a portfolios uh, may make some sense. Um, value-oriented companies also tend to hold up better in rising interest rate environments. Uh, whereas technology companies tend to be very poorly in those environments. So, well, and I think that that's you, you. You brought up a good point. I think you know to so people understand kind of money management in in the times that we're in right now. Rate of return and and kind of eking out better rate of return is not always spoken at on the positive side of the scale, right? I think that's a po point a lot of people don't quite understand is. You know, when you talk about rate of return in a market like this, um, we're not necessarily talking about positive rate of return. In a lot of ways, what we're talking about is how can you lose less? How can you defense better 
And I know people go, that, that's, a, that's almost a ridiculous statement. I should feel good about losing less money. And the answer is yes, you should, because we don't always, we don't always uh, equate our total gains within, within a portfolio over a period of time by just looking at the positive years. When we look at losing less in the negative years, it, it makes our overall rate of return better. Uh, so it's not just a focus on rate of return to the positive. It's also saying, how do you play better defense when the market's going through what it's going through right now? That's exactly right. There are definitely periods of time where value shines. Um, you know, the tech bust is one of the spots that value shined in, you know, and perhaps we're going through a mini tech Is it bust shined too. or shown? Danny, is it shown? I don't think it's showneth. <laughs> the ACT board is going to want their test back from your results if you that's go. what that's how we feel about. He the claims world. he was like a thirty-one or something. 30, don't 32? don't sell him short. Thirty-two. Thirty-two. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'd have a t-shirt made. Pretty good. Did you take it twice and add the scores up? <laughs> I still don't know if I would get to a thirty-two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now you could just use the excuse I'm not a very good test taker. Just, yeah, just that's not, right. Exactly. That I wasn't just, around not, when we took it. That, that wasn't a test. thing when you and I took the ACT. It wasn't a, there was no such thing as a bad test taker. Anyways, we digress. Um, actually, th there's one slide that actually stuck out to me a lot, um, and I wanted to touch on this because we've talked about kind of large value, large growth, and one of the spots that stood out to me most, the current price-to-earnings ratio as a percentage of the 20-year average. So... Um, you know, like large blend is at 100.3%. So in other words, the current price to earnings is at 15 and a half and the 20 year average of the price to earnings is about 15 and a half. Okay. So if we do use that as a, for example, we can look at where things might be overvalued and undervalued. So if we look at large value, it's at 91%. So it's kind of what I just talked about is large value looks to be a slightly undervalued and growth is at about 112 uh, percent. So, you know, maybe slightly overvalued there. Blend is like spot on. So if we look, one of the most interesting places is large growth is at 112. Small growth is at 65.9%. Wow. Yeah. So, you wow. know, you're kind of wondering like, why is that? Well, maybe they're the most interest rate sensitive company. They have to borrow right? a lot of money. Yep. yep. Especially growth, small growth. They have to borrow a lot to stay in business. Perhaps lower credit quality. Right, they have to pay more for their for their debt. Right. borrow it, cost yeah. them more money. Revenue is lower then. More uncertainty, probably in those small companies. Obviously, they, don't, they might not have, might be some going concern concerns over that. Um, whereas you contrast that with small value, it's eighty point six percent. So still on the, you know, arguably undervalued side. But yep. right. but large or small growth being at sixty five point nine when large growth is at one twelve. That's a total anomaly to me. Yeah, and I think it, it, it speaks to the idea that in, in markets like this, there's the, the old adage of flight to safety, right? And we, we, we identify, and correctly so, uh, you know, safety to, be, to reside in bigger companies. Uh, it's, it's almost where the, the phrase, and uh, I mean, it didn't come out of 0809, but more or less came out of 0809, but, you know, too big to fail, right? Because it's, it's so big, the institution or the organization is, is such a large institution that, you know, they can't fail. Um, that's that's an interesting. I would have guessed, and I'm assuming you would have as well, that those numbers would have trended that way. I think we both would have been shocked that they've trended that far that way, right? To to be only at sixty or sixty five percent of you know kind of where where you would assume you know if a hundred is kind of balanced, if you will, or or that's kind of where 
where the scale is, you know, has the equal weight on both sides of it, you know, to be at 65% of that is, uh, that's a pretty big deviation from what you would guess. That was surprising to me. That's that's pretty pretty surprising. Yeah. And I think that that we've always talked about the down markets help to illuminate and, and, uh, help us see better, maybe some things within the markets that we would not have seen had we not gone through those down markets. And I think that's one of the positives that come from down markets. I, I've said this before and, and may, you know, it's hard to know that this is true because, you know, it's hard to know how history would have played out, but a pretty good bet that we would not have known as well who, um, Jeffrey, or excuse me, Jeffrey made up, um, You've been watching Jeffrey Dahmer. I have. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> my my wife's been watching that. a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer lately, and uh, you know that's just it's crazy. We wouldn't have known who Madoff was, at least to the extent that he was, if Oin Nine didn't happen. And so when we when we have times like this where we go through these uglinesses in the market, it helps us to understand where vulnerability is. It helps us to understand where fraud maybe is. It helps us to understand what is strong, actually versus what is perceived to be strong, right? I think that in some cases we look at the companies that we like because we like them for whatever reason, they're local companies or we, our families like them or whatever it is. And so they're a quote, good, strong company. Well, until you go through a time like this and realize, holy cow, maybe not as strong as I thought. So in a way, this is the market's um, kind of defense that it has. It's, it's, the, it's the immune system of the market is to go through times like this and, and kind of root out those those areas that that uh have, have maybe been uh forgotten about or looked past and, and maybe they shouldn't have and you look at small growth and go hmm maybe should money should find itself to small growth mm-hmm. maybe, maybe that's an opportunity that that all of a sudden we wouldn't have really known about had we gone through this down market i that's mean right. you would have really had to look at the numbers to, to find that whereas in a down market like this all of a sudden it becomes kind of a, a blinking red light well, and usually small caps are the ones that take us out of the recession, right. you know, into that next bull market. Right. So I, I think what those numbers are telling us is that there is a definite anticipation of a recession. Right. You know, those numbers tell us right now that there is a flight to safety. Right. Money has gone to large companies at the expense likely of small companies. And when we do see the next rally, the next bull market, it will likely be these small companies that lead us out of it. And so I think that, you know, maybe it's a little early to go there now, but it's something to keep your eye on. If you're an investor um, or as we're going through portfolio management, we always have large, medium and small companies in all of our portfolios, but you know, it's something to, to look at a little bit stronger and saying, should we allocate a little more to these? So, you know, we watch, but these. this is not an advertisement to run out no, no, tomorrow it's not, it's and, and load up on a bunch of small caps. Let's be clear on that. No. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that to your point, Clint, small caps generally lead us out of ugly times. However, that, that leading out of ugly times might start tomorrow. It might start two years from tomorrow. We don't really know. So yeah, I think we're, we're still a ways away from, you know, what we might see as a recession. So now we're going to have to see how far the, the Fed does actually have to go to tamp down inflation, and that will have a big bearing on whether we see a recession and or how deep it is. So, All right, uh, let's uh, – sorry. Should we talk some fixed income? Fixed uh, that's income? just what I was going to. All right, yep, let's let, do that. Let's let's talk about some bond markets. Um, so let me, let me pose a question to you, Nate. I'm going to give you a quiz because I don't know if you've seen this slide. Okay. Um, number of times uh, since 1976 – 
Okay. We have seen negative bond markets, and we'll assume that this year is one of them. When we say negative bond markets, we're, we're saying the ag or something. Yeah, the, uh, the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate okay. bond index. Number of times, including this year, assuming this year was negative, this year will finish negative, uh, that the bond market has been negative since 76? 1976. <sighs> uh, I'm going to say four, and I'm going to say four because I'm going to say two of those happened in the 70s. I'm going to say one happened in the 80s, and I'm going to say one happened in the early 90s. So maybe maybe five, maybe five. Okay, you're right on the five, which okay. is amazing. Right on okay. the five. Um, however, not right on that. The 70s, 76 all the way to like 95, if I'm right on the chart, because I'm looking at the chart here just offhand, only one down market, minus 3%. And what year was that? It was like 95. Okay, so I did have that. Right. See, okay, so the, it must have been earlier in the seventies that that it yeah. that the ugliness happened. It must have been rebounding by then. Okay. And how many times? So now we have we have five down years in there. How many times has it been down more than five percent? It's this year, obviously, and I'll I'll say one more, but I'm not confident on that. It's, yeah. It might be just this year. Just this year. Yeah. Okay. Just this year. So the worst. Rate of return year, it was in that like 94, 95 range, uh, negative 3%. Yeah. It was a negative 1, a negative 2, and a negative 2 last year. You know, we're at somewhere around negative 14. So Say I mean, that again. We're, and, we're so, and we're around where? Like around negative 14. Negative 14. And we've had, and this is the only year that it's been down more than 5 since 1976, and it's not down 5.1. It's down 14. Yeah, so and I don't think people understand how bad the bond market is right now. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. It's that that is that. Unfortunately, that word gets said a lot uh, inaccurately in our society. This literally is unprecedented um, to have a drop of this level. This always makes me nervous when Dan's moving cameras around. This makes me believe that like he didn't charge a battery or something happened. That that's what happened here, right? It's got a lot of something. Different. Something happened here. Especially when we switch to the cell phone, like that—that's never good. That's that's Danny hitting the backup plan. No, I digress. So the 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 down market is—that's a word that kind of encompasses a lot of things, right? Negative one, negative two, negative five, negative fourteen. Negative fourteen is is a down market, you know, and and then another word after that because it just you can't. It, it just it's not. It's not clearly represented by just saying a down bond market. I mean, this is as bad as anybody has seen a bond market, start to a bond market uh, that is alive today. That's correct. And, and potentially as old as anybody who's alive today's grand, you know, their next generation, uh, their lifetimes as well. Might be uh, two generations. So it's, it's been a lot. I think it was 18 something that... You know, in the 1800s, when we saw a bond market this bad, I just think that 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 correlation that we're seeing between stocks and bonds is extreme. Yeah, and we've right. never really seen this in our investing lifetime. So it's not 
it's not providing the ballast that it normally does when the stock market usually goes down and the bond market usually at least holds the line or right. oftentimes increases. This is totally not what's happening. So investors, whether they're conservative investors or moderate growth investors, may actually obtain the same rate of return. Yeah, I, I'm trying. totally been, uncommon. I've been trying to come up with an analogy on this because I think that that um, it's helpful for people to understand and to kind of see the market as as a a somewhat of a finite amount of money that's invested within stocks, bonds, cash. It, it's not purely finite. It's not down to the penny, obviously, because some money comes out of investments and some money goes in every day. But for the most part, it's 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 a a similar amount of money that's invested kind of at all times. And so what happens is the money doesn't fly out of the market. Generally, when the market goes bad, stock market goes bad. It does what? It goes into bonds, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't flow out. It just flows to a different part of the market, right? So it's kind of like if you were holding a bucket of water and you tilted it to the right, you know, the, the water would rise on the right side of the bucket and go down on the left side of the mark of the bucket, right? That's kind of what happens, right? When stocks rally bonds, you know, money comes out of bonds and goes into stocks. Tip the bucket the other way, you know, when stocks don't do well, you know, money flows out of there and goes into the bond market. The problem here is the stock and bond market have fallen at the same time. The same amount of money, more or less in the market right now in all investments, but everything is losing. So you don't have that ability. It's not the teeter-totter idea of when this goes down, money flows out of this and it flows into this, which makes this go up. And conversely, that's not happening right now because you can't flow money the other direction and make that side go up because everything is getting hit right now. So it's just unprecedented to, to have as bad of a stock market and as bad of a bond market happening at the same time. It is. And commodities also, which were on a big rally earlier in the year, have dissipated as well. Uh, part of that's energy prices coming back down. Uh, real estate hasn't performed very well either. Uh, you know, as far as an asset class, a lot of those are real estate investment trusts uh, because of rising interest rates. Those tend to be very interest rate sensitive. So everything's gotten hit all at the same time. So the one thing cash is King now instead of being trash. So cash has been trash for a long time. Now it's kind of King, right? We'll see how long that persists, but uh, a good benefit to having all of this sort of thing happen in the bond market. And you've essentially erased 10 years of rates of return in the bond market with what's happened, uh, that we will see higher yields going forward and there'll be a natural healing of the bond market. So, you know, that's why we are a little reticent in, you know, not moving around our bond exposure, a, a super amount right now, because we do anticipate that yields will perk up over time. Uh, and, or maybe we will see interest rate cuts in the future and, you know, the longer dated bonds then will have their day in the sun again. So, uh, we'll see what happens there. Jeff Gunlock's super bullish on bonds right now. I, th I thought that was an interesting thing that I read the other day. So, um, you know, check out maybe some of his comments. I think he's a, a really good bond manager and has, has done um, some, he does a ton of research. He's really, really well-spoken. So, um, and if we shift gears one more time, Nate, um, in pivoting a little bit from the, the stock and bond markets, let's talk for a moment a little bit about international versus domestic. Um, I feel like every year we say this, that the international markets yep. are undervalued relative to the domestic markets. And so I saw this slide here and I thought this was great because it seems like forever we have been saying that. And so when I look at U.S. performance versus uh, international stock performance, 
the outperformance of the U.S. stock market has been 210% from about 2007 to today and 15 years of sustained outperformance. That's We talk about unprecedented. Between U.S. to international. Inter- to, between U.S. to international. This chart started in 1971 that they gave us. The longest other one that we saw here was international outperformed about 7.3 years and only about like 64%. So this has been just a massive outperformance of U.S. stocks for a protracted period of time. At some point that will cease, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll, who knows? Maybe be another 15 years. I don't know. But right now we're at, when we talk about like standard deviations of, of outperformance, this has been really, really uh, a large standard deviation away from the norm. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's it's a hard one for us because again, you and I believe in the idea that you know things will will kind of find their way back to their their historical averages. Um, I think the international markets have been they've just been hit, you know, starting in 08, 07, 08, Right, those markets did not recover as fast as the U.S. markets did. Uh, excuse me, 0809. They didn't recover as fast out out of 0809. Um, they kind of lagged, um, into the, into the kind of mid teens of, of, uh, of the century. Then COVID hit, obviously that, that, uh, shook them up. Brexit has been, you know, uh, an, an unstabilizing, uh, factor, uh, strengthening of the dollar has, has, has hit them. I, I think it's just, they've just been hit kind of one time after another, after another, after another with these these um, maybe not unforeseen events, but just these events that that just keep kind of resetting them back to okay, now they're going to start to grow again, and then you know they they in some cases do grow a little bit, or in some cases kind of just still muddle along, and then they get hit again, and then it's okay, now we're going to reset. Okay, now it's going to, and then they just get hit again, and I, I think some of that too is when you look at the the um, the political environment in in uh, in Europe. Um, Somewhat unstable. It seems like they're trying to find their their feet a little bit. You know, you have a a a wave a little bit of of push toward conservative politics. You know, in Italy, uh, you know that happened, and in other places, that's kind of perking up in Europe. That that's not a very uh, that, that that's not a common or excuse me a recent um, trend that we can point to and go, okay, yeah, but that happened again over here and again over here. I mean that that that's that's new ish, you know, for, for Europe. I'm, I'm not sure where this all shakes out. This is, this will be very interesting to see. I would bet because I, I tend to bet toward averages that it's, that, that we're going to see outperformance of Europe versus, or excuse me, of international versus us in the next five to 10 years, simply because of the historical data. I, I don't, I don't know. I feel confident about a comfortable, comfortable, excuse me, about that bet though. Even though it's been 15 years of outperformance, I still don't know that it doesn't last another five or 10 years. It may. Which just sounds crazy to say, but I, I don't, I, I would almost bet that we still see outperformance on the U.S. side over the next five to ten years. You think so? Huh? I, 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 I somewhat know. think so, and but I wouldn't, I wouldn't leverage a bunch of money on it. I would simply say that I don't. There's not a lot in my head that I look at and go, yeah, yeah. Now they're poised. Okay, the rockets on the on the launch pad. You know, we're counting down. You know, you're primarily going to lead the international world to bigger and better things over the next five to 10 years. I, I don't see that. I'm not saying it can't happen. I just, I just don't know that I see that right now. 
Well, if we look at a couple data points, if we look at Europe specifically and their current price earnings ratio, it's at about 10 and a half. And so his, cheap. historically speaking, 14.6. It's so cheap right now. It's so cheap. And, and that's, that's the, the, the reason why we look at these things and, and we, we scratch our heads and try to understand how, because typically what happens is when something gets cheap enough, the buyers come in. The buyers come in and they buy it and therefore the price goes up and therefore it rallies and, and on and on and on, right? It's just been so cheap for so long. I just don't understand it. It's like they it's like they have the clearance sign outside in the window and just nobody's walking through the door. I don't quite understand. And it's not like it's clearance of selling a bunch of things that nobody wants. You're talking about very strong economies that have very solid co- corporations, very solid balance sheets, but yet it just doesn't seem like anybody wants to buy the prices up. I don't understand what that is. Yeah, part it. of that could be the the dollar um, being very right. strong. Another component of it, and you know, we'll have to ask um, some of the members of the international team on this. But I, you know, I think currency definitely has a big thing on it. So, you know, if we do see the dollar get weaker, I think we'll see better international returns. I mean, that that is how that actually works. So I do believe that we could get some of that. Uh, tailwind right now it's a big headwind in your face if you're investing internationally and that could become a tailwind as soon as uh, we start to see um, you know they're they're moving their interest rates up as well pretty much across Europe Uh, so maybe they get you know maybe things flip you know we start cutting rates and they're continuing to raise rates and all of a sudden you'll see a strengthening of those other currencies the other thing that we could see um, is just sort of that that mean reversion of saying well now now that is a catalyst, and now we see some momentum towards that, and the trades start going that that way. I mean, it's a massive difference between the the averages and what we're seeing right now. So I would bet that we will see international outperform, but I feel like I've been super wrong on that for the last ten years. So, you know, I, I think it's it's the same old story too. I think that you know people just aren't traveling yet, especially internationally, uh, as much as they were pre-COVID. I think that has to turn itself around. I think the strong dollar does help that side of it. Uh, but I still don't think you're seeing people travel as much as, as they did before. And I do think supply chain, supply chain problems, um, are hurting Europe potentially, uh, potentially more than the U S only from the standpoint that, that, you know, the U S is, is, has the, the, the depth and breadth, um, to be able to, potentially mitigate those, those situations better than does the, you know, each of the individual countries that make up, you know, the, you know, Europe in general or, or, you know, the Asian countries. Um, I think it's, it's difficult to, to, um, kind of fix some of the supply chain issues when you don't have the volume that you have in the U S I think it's easier in some cases to do that. Um, you can maybe go to different suppliers. You can maybe make it yourself. You can do different things. And I don't know that necessarily every country in, in, uh, in Europe or, or in the, in the developed world primarily, uh, has the ability to switch gears maybe as quickly as the U S has, has been able to do. Uh, I, I agree with you from the extent that I think when those work itself out and we're already starting to see the supply chain issues somewhat work themselves out, um, that, that could be that kind of push that, uh, that the interna- international side needs, um, to start to outperform the U S but well, it, it's, and we'd be remiss to, to. <laughs> not to say that there's also a, war going on as well so you know obviously it has an impact economically 
to the whole region uh, because as it's closer and closer to your doorstep, it's obviously going to have an economic impact in um, the country as well. So, you know, obviously the U.S. being a bit away from that, not 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 involved in it, but, uh, you know, it's away from it a little bit more, and so it has a little less of a, an impact there as well. So, so I think, you know, to wrap up kind of the Q3 recap is saying, look, you know, stocks are not doing well right now, but also bonds are not doing well. Diversification is not really working right now, and it will work over time. But again, um, we're in a situation where we're going through a, a big reset in the bond markets. Uh, we are seeing higher rates. That's good. That's opportunistic. We are seeing some spots where we do think that there is some valuation attractiveness in equities. Uh, but, you know, people need to start to sit into and understand that these things take time uh, and it will take a little bit of, uh, you know, the time for the inflation rates to come down for us potentially to go into recession. The stock market will not start doing sustained rallies until uh, the market feels like the worst is over and the worst is probably not here yet. And that's a great point. Uh, we always say that that the stock market tends to lead or tends to uh, rally um, significantly sooner than does the economy in general coming out of recession. Uh, said another way, you're you're likely to see the stock market start to move up and 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 uh, start to appreciate again uh, well before the presumed recession is over. Um, but I, I think that we have some room to fall here before, uh, you know, we get to that point. And that, that doesn't mean that we should all hit the panic button. What it does mean is that we should just be under, we should have some appreciation for the fact that while it's fallen a lot, uh, valuations still are not, you know, screamingly low right now. And, 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 um, Maybe it falls another 5%. Maybe it falls another 15 We don't know. Uh, but I, it just feels like there's. it's got to give back a little bit more until that rally kicks in. I would tend to agree with that thesis, and I think that we're in the middle of you know what we just call bear market rallies. You'll see, right. you'll see some. Right. You'll feel relieved as an investor. You'll go, okay, well, maybe the worst is over. And then you'll have this trap where it's not, and then it'll hit a lower low, and you'll be like, ugh. And it'll be frustrating. There's no question about that. I mean, this could be a multiple-year thing. We might see a couple years that are down in a row, that wouldn't surprise me. So, you know, as investors, we just have to understand that the calendar doesn't care. It doesn't right. mean that, you know, just because the calendar flips to 2023 doesn't mean that everything's going to be all better in 2023. You know, the stock market will recover whenever, whenever earnings are good and some of these items that are drags on earnings, you know, start to dissipate. So supply chains wars, inflation, all of those sorts of things that um, are around a, an overheated economy. Once that works its way out, you'll start to see stock prices go back up and sustain those gains. Yeah, and uh, to, to answer the question that some people might have in their heads uh, right now, which is, okay, well, if you guys believe this, then why aren't you you know, getting more conservative? Why aren't you shifting and, and, and getting into protectionary mode? And the frank answer to that question is because we've been wrong before. And we could be wrong this time, i.e. the market could fall another three or four or five percent. Something could kick it in. It rallies again and, and, and it rallies right when we're moving more conservative. Uh, 
that's the reason why we're not what are called tactical money managers. We believe in diversification. We believe in long-term fundamentals. Long-term fundamentals say this is how you manage money during down markets. You play better defense. You don't tactically shift to cash and then try to shift back in. That's not prudent money management, at least the way we see the world. So uh, us playing good defense in times like this will set us up for when, because nobody knows when, when the market decides to turn and go the other direction. Yeah, and it's it's definitely not a screaming buy right now either to advocate that, and it's not, the, the metrics would not tell us that the market is extremely overvalued either. So I think just being prudent in your money management and understanding that's a long game, uh, the only time when you would want to con- depart from that would be if you really need uh, money in the next couple of years. Well, you know, right now you've got to discuss that strategy with your financial advisor and come up with a plan on how you're going to mitigate that. Yep. Because otherwise, you know, if you had to get money out over the next couple of years, it might be tough sledding and you got to check your allocation. And, you know, if your goals have changed for this money or you anticipate taking out a bunch of money for a particular reason, you need to have discussions. And also debt's more expensive. So that's those are all things to discuss with your financial advisor saying, okay, well, my, my stuff is down and I'm also going to take on some debt and my debt is at higher interest rates. Should I do that? And how should I do that? And so there's just some great conversations to have with your advisor to just say, okay, well, where am I at specifically and personally and what sort of game plan do we have for that? And I'll, I'll end on this. It, 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 it's a, a, uh, it, it's not us, making a commercial for this, but it is prudent advice to say, this is why you have a financial plan. You have a financial plan because the world changes. The world is different. And if you have a financial plan that was printed for you in a nice leather bound, whatever, a year ago, guess what? That plan is very, very much outdated at this point. So talk to your advisors, take a look at your plan. We'll, we're happy to update our clients' plans. We do it anyways. We want to go through it with you. Uh, if you're feeling trepidation, this is where those plans really, really have value because it's in times like this where people go, does my plan still work? Yes, it does. We've planned for these times. Great. Okay. Uh, and if it doesn't, we need to make a few tweaks. You know, this is the, the time to review that. So that's our, our little uh, blurb for if you're feeling trepidation, call us. Uh, we, we don't know what's going on in your heads if you, if you don't help us understand that. So if you're feeling concerned, let us know and let's sit down and, and, and review your plan. Uh, that is our recap of Q3. Uh, we will obviously do a year-end recap, uh, you know, long about January after the holidays. So everybody have a great fourth quarter, um, and we'll uh, talk to you again on another episode of Give Me Some Truth. Walkner Conan Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The opinions expressed by the participants of this podcast are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Walkner Conan Financial Advisors. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. 
Thanks for listening, and for further information, please visit walknercondon.com.